0: Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South-Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, the U.S.-Canadian Alliance for Peace and Security in Alaska. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Our featured speaker is Brigadier General Scott Clancy, Deputy Commander of the Alaska Region of the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. As a Canadian officer working with U.S. military forces, he says continued cooperation between the two countries is essential when looking to the future and the changing Arctic. This event was recorded on May 10th at 49th State Brewing Company and was hosted by the Alaska World Affairs Council. Lieutenant Colonel Tyler Moore speaks first.
1: So lately, the southern border kind of gets all the attention, right? trade wars, illegal immigration, global military competition, we kind of only hear the negative. But I think you're going to hear something quite a bit different today. The U.S. and Canada share the world's largest border, along with a very high degree of trade, tourism, migration, and military cooperation. We don't agree on everything. Uh, But a, a recent Gallup poll found that 96% of Americans had a positive view of Canadians, which made me think what percentage of Americans have a positive view of other Americans? In any case, let me introduce a, a, a Canadian that I personally have a very positive view of, Brigadier General Scott Clancy. He was born and raised in Ottawa, Ontario, where his parents still reside. He joined the Air Cadets when he was young in order to follow his dream of flying becoming a glider and a private pilot. General Clancy joined the military in 1984 and attended the Royal Military College at St. John, graduating in 1989. He received his wings after completing the basic helicopter course in December of 1990. He has served in the 427, 430, and 403rd Tactical Helicopter Squadrons. He has held staff appointments as a contingency planner in the 1st Canadian Air Division and Canadian NORAD Region Headquarters, Winnipeg, the aviation member of the directing staff and the Chief of Curriculum Development at the Army Staff College, and finally, Chief of Staff for One Wing Headquarters. In 2008, General Clancy was charged with planning and deploying uh, helicopter forces to Afghanistan, including the interim Chinook capability for which he was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal. In 2010, he was deployed to Haiti, in command of the air component there as part of the Canadian Forces response to the earthquake of 12 January 2010. His actions there earned him a second MSM. In 2011, Brigadier General Clancy took over as the Deputy Chief of the NORAD-NORTHCOM Current Operations Center in Colorado Springs. Over the next three years, he was intimately involved with numerous homeland defense and civil support operations. In 2014, General Clancy assumed command of one wing, and in 2016, the position of Director General Air Readiness in Ottawa. Now, he is the Deputy Commander for the Alaska NORAD region. General Clancy is bilingual, so he speaks English and Canadian and holds a bachelor's degree in military and strategic studies from the College Militaire Royale in St. John, and a master's in defense studies from RMC in Kingston. He is a graduate of the Canadian Land Forces Command and Staff College, the Canadian Forces College, and the US Air Force Air War College. He enjoys most sports, especially basketball and triathlon training. General Clancy is happily married to his wife, Val, who's with us today. So without any further ado, please uh, join me in welcoming Brigadier General Scott Clancy.
2: So uh, thanks a lot, Ty. I really appreciate that uh, kind introduction. It's probably way too much for this crowd. Uh, Karen, thanks for being here. And a lot, a lot of friendly faces out in the audience uh, that I've spent a little bit of time here Yeah, so I'm a helicopter pilot. Did a little bit of planning in the uh, Air Force uh, and with NORAD. So I will take questions on anything that has to do with anything about the Canadian Armed Forces. So when we get to that question period, I'm going to talk specifically about the NORAD Alliance today, but I'll take questions on anything Canadian, especially why you hate Canadians. So let's let's delve into it. Let's, Let's talk a little bit about... The longest standing military alliance in the world, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. So NORAD, the inception of which comes out of the the beginning of the Cold War. There's a long history that I don't want to bore anybody with, but what we want to get into is why the alliance has been so durable throughout the ages. 60 years this past year, and we're about to celebrate our 61st year this year. To me, it's three words. Stability, steadfastness, and resilience. And the reason why I use those three words is because that underpins the same dynamic as the relationship between Canada and the United States. It's one that has been steadfast, durable, and resilient over the course of our relationship. Yes, I know that 1812 was a little bit of a bugbearer, but Canada wasn't a country back then, so blame that on someone else. Oh, and by the way, we won. But steadfastness means that regardless of the diplomatic and political turmoils that happen at any point in time, our military alliance, the fabric of the relationship between our countries stays the same. Uh, I remember uh, sitting in this very room, as a matter of fact, when uh, General O'Shaughnessy and uh, Secretary of the Air Force were here talking to a bunch of community leaders that had followed up from Colorado Springs. And I asked them what they thought and what, what, what were their impressions of having to visit all the different installations of NORAD and what they were taken with was regardless of the political nature of the day, it was very reassuring for them to know that there was a military connectivity and alliance that was there steadfast underneath that that was guaranteeing the security of both of our nations. Uh, that, that to me, is indicative of the kind of relationship that we have. But what what through Canada and the United States together is pretty easy, right? Geography. So... Uh, Ty said the longest border in the world. I used to say always the longest undefended border, but I think the United States is pulling that undefended part back. That's, that was my second joke that didn't go well. Okay, The, the idea is about the longest undefended border in the world is because of the nature of how we do our, our business, which is we will always be cooperating, and anything that we do together is going to be stronger than anything we do divided the geography that ties us together is as much the geography that ties alaska to the continental united states that physical positioning between for the most part a lot of our enemies and the the homeland is, is what places that to, to remember that you know 85 to 90% of the canadian population lives within 200 kilometers of the american border that means that the arctic is as remote to most canadians as it is to most people in the United States. And I know that there's an ongoing dialogue trying to resurge the Arctic as uh, an element of debate and issue uh, within both of our parliaments. Canadians actually talk a lot about the Arctic, but they never visit there. And we have an extraordinarily small population uh, and resource base into the north, and that's because of how remote it actually is. It's harder to get to our Arctic than it is to get to Europe. That's 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 for sure. So if geography throws us together, binational agreement is what keeps us together. And the binational agreement is the NORAD agreement that ties us to that mutual defense. So when we go to something, we say, hey, the the agreement provides us that steadfastness and stability. Neither nation wants to undo the fundamental underpinnings that drew us together. Now, I like to think of this as a relationship. And relationships are based upon connective tissue. So I have a lovely relationship with my wife and, and, and our, we have one with our kids, but we have to work at those relationships. And that's what I call the connective tissue. You have, to, you have to pour your money into these things. But being in a good relationship is also being told, honey, you have something on your face, which I get told quite often because I'm a bit of a messy eater. And, and in so doing, that makes me stronger. That makes me better. Now, when you're in a relationship with your twin brother, This can be interesting. The United States and Canada pretty much are twins. So we can identify ourselves with our differences. Everybody says the Canadians say sorry way too much. That's probably true. Uh, However, when you think about how we identify ourselves, you see Canadians and Americans pointing to those elements of difference. I have a a pimple on my knee, I walk differently, and I like this different music. Okay, but for 99% of the rest of the world, Canada and the United States look identical. And that is part of the connective tissue within that relationship that provides that stability, that steadfastness, because it is difficult to draw apart those two nations because our interests worldwide align. Even though some of our methods don't align sometimes, our interests definitely do. Inside of the alliance between Canada and the United States inside NORAD, the two things that I say that draw us, that, that, that keep us together and will continue to keep us together is our command and control and our concept of operations. So our concept of operations is how we deploy our forces, how we integrate between the two nations, and then our command and control is how we command over those. So let's start with the second one first, how we command over it. The commander of NORAD is an American four-star general, General O'Shaughnessy, but his deputy, Lieutenant General Chris Coates is a Canadian three-star general. There are three regions inside of NORAD. Each one of those regions is commanded either by an American or a Canadian. And the deputy is of the other nation. So I am the deputy commander to uh, Lieutenant General Tom Boussier, who is the commander of the Alaska NORAD region here. That binational command means that every time that he's out of pocket, and he is out of pocket right now, then I exercise those command authorities on his behalf independent of which nation's forces are being commanded at that point in time. And we flow forces back across all of the regions so that any one of the commands uh, can exercise this. This brings up an interesting point, and and it's a a story that kind of uh, exemplifies that connective tissue. It's the morning of 9-11. So in the morning of 9-11, I was serving in the Canadian NORAD region as a contingency planner in Winnipeg. At the time uh, that the the World Trade Centers were hit and the attacks occurred, It was a Canadian who was in charge of the of NORAD because the American was out of pocket. In the Continental NORAD region, which is the southern 48, uh, it was the Canadian that was in charge because the American was out of pocket. In the Canadian NORAD region, uh, it was the American that was in charge because the Canadian was out of pocket. And in Alaska, it was the Canadian that was in charge because the American was out of pocket. So it was the exact opposite of how the command architecture had set up. And I watched with fascination uh, while the Canadian three-star general uh, was a little bit irate at the American one-star for how the Canadians in the Canadian region were reacting to his orders. Okay. <laughs> but again, what that you know, exemplifies is the manner in which the mutual trust of the leadership in any one of those officers is placed. It's independent of the national flag. It's based upon a credibility and a trust that endures across, and that, to me, it personifies the words that I was talking about in the beginning, right? Stability and steadfastness. Uh, so, you know, I, I use that 9-11 example because it's a really tough day in our history, and you see people's character as they walk through fire in those moments. And I think we saw the character of the American people. Very clearly in those days and the days after. But I think you also saw how close Canada was going to stand steadfastly beside the United States in all operations. And the NORAD agreement, or sorry, the NORAD relationship uh, exemplifies that.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program is the U.S.-Canadian Alliance for Peace and Security in Alaska, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. We'll pick back up with Brigadier General Scott Clancy, Deputy Commander of the Alaska NORAD region.
2: I also mentioned the word resilience. And when I mentioned the word resilience... You say, okay, well, if you're steadfast, aren't you resilient? Well, well, NORAD has watched the evolution over time. There was a time in the 80s where we talked about SNORAD. Um, so not NORAD, but SNORAD, and that's because it was pretty sleepy. Uh, we did some counter-drug work, but other than that, you know, the Russians were our friends as of 1989, and this was relatively easy, so the 90s turned into that uh, that sleepy zone. Resilience. I think, within organizations and institutions is their ability to redefine themselves, to reinvent themselves. So as you see the evolution of the threat over time, and there has been an evolution of the threat over time, the Cold War, the post 9-11 age, and I think there's been a most recent uh, change in the threat as we advance into uh, the next 20 or 30 years. NORAD's ability to reinvent itself, to be relevant to both nations at each juncture, that. That is one of the keys to the methodology with which NORAD maintains its relevance to both countries. That's why we talk about the underpinnings of geography and all the rest of those things, but you have to be relevant or else you're just an institution that's wasting money and energy for both countries. So to me, that's, that's when I think about that threat. So let's, let's, let's circle into that threat. So everybody understands the Cold War, the evolution of the, the Russian threat throughout the Cold War. Okay, 9-11 hits, and the paradigm that sets up after 9-11 is that uh, state-sponsored or state uh, actors are going to act in their best interests. However, long-term conventional war is so far out of our lexicon that we really think that we're focused on the counter uh, VEO threat. So we're talking about violent extremist organizations. We're talking about the terrorist threat. And our the paradigm that gets set up in both of our countries is One way or another, we have to fight the wars overseas so that those threats do not manifest themselves in the homeland. And we've been doing this for 15 years. Uh, As you've seen from my bio, many friends of mine have fought and deployed in Afghanistan. Uh, We've lost uh, a lot of good uh, men and women fighting these kinds of wars, and, and they're good things to fight. However, I think the threat is changing, and I think the threat has changed, and I I believe, and I think all of the leadership within NORAD is firmly entrenched in, in the concepts that the revisionist powers of China and Russia, and we're most specifically focused on Russia, but I, I can speak to both, are presenting a state threat that can no longer be ignored. And if you're paying the away game, and this is how we thought about this, during the period of time we were in Iraq and Afghanistan and fighting those away wars, is that if we paid and fought the wars of the nation overseas, then that threat wouldn't manifest itself at home. only works if those agencies and organizations or states, Russia and China, cannot directly influence and attack your nation at length. And they can whether it's through cyber effects, whether it's through their military arsenals and the buildup of their military arsenals, they can. So we go back to this link of geography. There was a time when the Arctic was seen as this huge barrier, much like the oceans were seen as barriers up until the nineteenth century and kept the homeland of North America safe. I would say, you know, and if I was the commander of Nav North right now, he would say oceans are avenues of approach, they are not moats. And It's by, with, and through the Arctic. Which means that our enemies are going to be using the Arctic as an avenue of approach to attack the homeland. This chart that I have up, and I I love this, uh, General Wilsbach, who was the commander here before uh, Tom Boussier took over last summer, He'd always portray this up. And the idea about that Billy Mitchell was trying to get at, saying that Alaska's the most strategic place on the planet is because you can get to all of the national capitals in the northern hemisphere within a nine-hour flight straight out of Anchorage. Now, let's be clear. Don't try to do that on commercial airlines, because it'll take a lot longer than that. But if you're trying to project power out of Alaska, you can project it very, very quickly. And you can be in the world's hotspots faster than anywhere else. That means that the United States and Canada has a unique opportunity with geography to be able to project power from it. It also means that our allies have to deal with Alaska if they are going to attack the homeland. That places Alaska on the front line of defense in a state-on-state action, China and Russia being the revisionist powers that they are. The national defense strategy of the United States and Canada's new defense policy, Strong, Secure, and Engage, identify these as being key threats that we have to deal with. So um, what I'm not going to spend some time with is talking about the National Defense Strategy of the United States, because you're Americans. I will spend some time talking about Strong, Secure, and Engaged. So for those people who are familiar with Canadian defense policy, Canadian defense policy since the inception of Canada, that's 1967, or 1867, sorry, that's kind of funny, contains two imperatives and one choice. The two imperatives are you must defend the country. You must defend the continent. Those are the two imperatives and the choice is what else you want to do. Do you want to be engaged in the world? Do you want to contribute to international peace and security? And you've seen Canada's defense policy change the wording and the focus around that third choice many times. Currently, it's about being engaged in the world. If Canada is engaged in the world diplomatically, militarily, internationally, and all the elements of its power, and the Canadian Forces has to be poised to be able to do that, then it's gonna contribute to the security of the nation. But it does not change the two first imperatives, strong in Canada, secure in North America. When I look at those two imperatives in Canadian defense policy, they, they come home to roost directly within the NORAD relationship with Canada and the United States. It's why you see the Diceman holding the alert for us inside the NORAD region. It's why you see this alliance being steadfast, stable, and resilient over time. Because you have to meet those two imperatives. Funny enough, I like that it's a Canadian invention. uh, Because I think those imperatives speak to how we see North America. So if you're going to ask The World According to Scott, and by the way, it's a great book. I quote from it all the time. The World According to Scott is is that North America needs to be a citadel. It's already a beacon of democracy worldwide. And I truly believe that. When you talk to people worldwide about what they think of our two nations, they think of examples to be followed. Wish we could be like you. Wish we could have the freedom that you have. That's great. But it needs to be a citadel from a security point of view as as well because if not, the enemies will be at the gates and and they will attempt to dismantle those things that we hold so dear. So I spoke a little bit about the away game and the home game. To me, the paradigm, and and I'd love to take questions on this, uh, that needs to change is how we service as both of our nations, that Homeland Defense. If we believe, excuse me, that the Homeland is at risk and we need to make sure that the Homeland is secure first before projecting beyond our boundaries, that you're gonna fight the nation's wars, defend the Homeland, not necessarily in Iraq and Afghanistan or even in Europe. You're gonna have to fight them at home. Then you need to pay into the Homeland Defense first. That means that asset allocation, how you force develop yourselves, how you lead and choose to lead your next generation, they need to be focused on defending the homeland first, and that puts the binational agreement of NORAD foremost in my mind because it's the best methodology with which to get after those things. So in closing for my formal remarks, you know, stable, steadfast, resilient, that's how I see the NORAD agreement. The home game and the away game, we need to change our paradigm here. It's not now good enough to fight our nation's wars overseas, because that's not necessarily going to create that security at home. And lastly, Canadians love our agreement with you because it's indicative of the intimate relationship that we have between both of our nations. Thank you very much and questions.
0: So may I just say that you are an excellent communicator. Uh, that was very clear and concise. And I'm right here if you're searching. I know that's very, very hard. But yeah, Hi. Uh, Fran Elmer, Arctic Research Commission. So as the Arctic emerges now as a place of much more interest than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago, to what extent is the real on the ground or in the air work that NORAD teams are doing, how has that changed? Can you give us a couple of examples of, you know, very specifically what NORAD is doing now in the Arctic space that most of us who are not as familiar as you are with kind of how that plays out on a daily basis?
2: That, that, that's a great question, and thank you for that. Uh, NORAD has always been... Intimately focused towards the Arctic. As a matter of fact, as early back as 1958, with the inception of the of the, the agreement, we started looking at the maps that we produced from putting the pole right at the center of the map, as opposed to looking at it from you know the the continental forward. Pragmatically on the ground to answer specifically your question, uh, things like global warming are affecting uh, our coastal radar sites in the northwest. Uh, the north warning system all the way along the uh, the arctic the evolution of the opening of the arctic sea ice to uh, maritime traffic is posing all sorts of problems as we see threats that will incur into the the homeland will not just be from the air domain but from the maritime domain and on land so as north as the NORAD agreement has to evolve, and we have to evolve to maintain our um, relevance to both nations. We're seeing the uh, programmatics that are going to take us to get the systems that we need to be able to provide the situational awareness in the Arctic are a long time off to be able to provide, and and that's causing us some distinct problems. Um, The last thing that I will say is that the... On the positive side, the way that I think the Arctic is evolving is uh, forums like the Arctic Council that are working through many of the diplomatic issues and economic issues associated with the Arctic are actually really good venues for us on the security side to keep at an arm's distance and watch very closely because now this, again, is the World According to Scott. When I look on the inside of those councils, they're setting the stage for resolution for the vast majority of the issues that are occurring in the arctic my concern my main concern is is that some actors will not act in good faith they'll walk in and do diplomatic answers to this however their real answer is to gain security leverage by using and abusing the Arctic, whether it's its resources or its geography, to be able to hold the homeland at bay. The inability of us to see that. So you know, I look at it from a Canadian perspective. We just started a program of icebreakers in the Arctic, but it will be another 10 to 15 years before we can field those vessels. Uh, the United States' icebreaker capability is very, very small. Uh, although great that we've announced. The United States has announced uh, an evolution to that, and I think that uh, forums like this have been very good in in assisting in the formulating of those strategies by advocating for those things. But when I compare it to the Russian icebreaking capability, it, which is, uh, you know, 4,500 times larger, because they have, you know, 45 to 50 icebreaking vessels, and they're looking at more, and then how they do those kinds of pieces, I, I think that demonstrates a fundamental difference in how they view the Arctic by, with, and through. So climate change is definitely affecting our bases. Uh, it affects, so I'll give you another pragmatic example, and, and this applies to, to the Diceman as well. Um, for us to put F-22 Raptors up over, uh, off, of, off of land, when you're dealing with you know multi-year ice or at least ice, then it provides a certain amount of risk. But we know that if something happens to that aircraft, they punch out, they'll land on ice. When it's water that's sitting about one degree above zero, sorry, that's Celsius, so uh, 33 Fahrenheit, (laughs) that's where water freezes, right? Um, Then that provides a significant more risk to the drivers of those aircraft which means that I need to assess that risk of what the cost-benefit analysis is in there. That's something I never had to concern myself with before, but I definitely have to. And I might have to place more search-and-rescue assets up on the North Slope to enable those kinds of things. So you can start to seeing these things are going to continuously be factors of consideration from a military perspective uh, that uh, the evolution of the Arctic never was before. It was just a stable piece to us. Time and space and geography are also interesting things. Uh, communications in the Arctic is extraordinarily difficult. We never really had to, though. We could just use SATCOMs, and we didn't have to go up there very much. Since we're operating more continuously in the Arctic, you need that minute-by-minute communication because you need that command and control back to the, to the mothership. Without reliable uh, satellite-supported wide-area communications in the Arctic, you can't affect good command and control. There you go. So I hope that answers your question. Maybe plus, plus, plus.
0: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program is the U.S.-Canadian Alliance for Peace and Security in Alaska, presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. The featured speaker is Brigadier General Scott Clancy, Deputy Commander of the Alaska NORAD region. We'll continue with questions from the audience.
2: Please.
1: Thank you again so much for being here. We really appreciate it. My question um, is regarding China in particular. More and more we're talking about the long game China's playing in the Arctic. And in the U.S., we've seen a little bit of disparity between um, diplomatic rhetoric and military rhetoric in terms of how we should address our relationship with China. And I'm wondering if from the military perspective, you see any potential conflicts or tensions in our Um, by national alliance as our relationship with China and the U.S. shifts and evolves?
2: That's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I have to say that it's as complicated on the Canadian side as it is on the American side. When you look at our, uh, I mean, it's in the news right now, but uh, the VP of Huawei is actually in Vancouver under house arrest well, we try to decide where we're going to extradite her to the United States. Uh, this is causing significant ramifications on the diplomatic side. And Canada has significant economic ties with China in terms of trade. And we're an exporting nation. So if we're not exporting to China, we need to find other markets for this or the impact on our economies is significant. So we don't have the same, uh, the same dynamic. It's actually a little bit more critical. What I would say is those uh, diplomatic and economic um, differences that you see between that and the military assessment, those are good conversations to be having at the highest levels of both of our nations. What I don't think it does is it changes uh, the nature of the alliance and how we see things. What I will say is we need to be setting the stage now for how we're gonna defend against the emerging threats as China develops them over time. So if I go back, and this is, again, the the world according to Scott, China is a regional power uh, post-World War II, developing its regional, excuse me, influence is is very obvious. Its operations in the South China Sea, uh, very obvious, but it is now clearly moving beyond, uh, and this is its Belt and Road initiatives, moving beyond being a regional power, to focusing on being a, a world power and focusing on being on the world power its operations especially its economic projection of power into africa uh, and anywhere around the arctic is uh, worrisome because they don't play by the same rules they don't play by the same games and they don't have the same limitations that our nations would put on in company uh, in uh, in country investors overseas so they don't don't have the same limitations on how much they would lend and everything else, which allows them to provide leverage internationally, which we cannot deal with. And all of that leverage is to achieve ultimately economic and military gain, and that's their game in in uh, in the Arctic as well. That's why it's concerning that they're an, uh, uh, you know uh, allowed a seat not at the Arctic Council, but at least as a, uh, what do they call it a observer on the Arctic Council. So I think that those differences don't, uh, show a difference between Canada, the U.S. inside of our alliance, but there definitely is a difference in how the assessment of that risk looks from a military perspective versus from an economic perspective. Uh, my wife and I were in Canada, you know, uh, last couple of weeks and we were in, a uh, bear, we were staying in a transient barracks in Trenton, Ontario, one of our biggest military bases, and for two weeks we couldn't get our TV to work. And I picked up the TV box and I went, howway wow, okay, That uh, the Canadian military is actually buying from a company that, you know, uh, I see is conducting cyber espionage on every single piece of equipment that it owns, and my TV doesn't work when I'm sitting in that, that there's maybe it didn't work because it was just recording my conversation. So anyways... But, but so that's a little bit of a funny on the end of that. But I think my answer is that I don't see any real differences that that uh, that I'd be concerned about. I'm more concerned about getting ahead of the threat. Did you have a question, Brooke?
3: To what extent has NORAD experienced
1: uh, probes or even attacks from uh, digitally over the internet from the former Soviet Union and China?
2: That's a, so. That's a great question. Uh, Canada and the United States uh, stand together in defending our networks against uh, cyber threats. Um, and, and we have to be just conscious of the security clearance of uh, the information that, that were portrayed, but uh, all of our networks, both militarily and commercially, are under attack from those two entities. Uh, the you know, publicly, they're not going to say that they're uh, into those attacks. That That's fine. That's not my perspective. That's not the perspective of the Canadian go- and U.S. governments either. So uh, the real issue here is how to fight on that uh, domain, how to integrate those pieces uh, into an overarching fight that NORAD has to and making our networks more resilient, uh, more duplicated so that we can cover off of those risks. My concern is that we, we lived in a time in the 1960s and 70s when NORAD was, everything was resilient, everything was duplicated, everything was hardened because we were attempting to survive a nuclear conflict. We moved through the 90s and into the 2000s. We start fighting in Afghanistan and it's more off the shelf, quick, give me a quick capability, and commercially viable. Those things are not hardened, resilient, and duplicated. We find ourselves in a problem space now where our cyber networks were built by the very people who are attacking them, uh, where our switches are single points of failure, where our electrical companies do, you know, are relied upon for commercial power, and when we lose that commercial power, we can't operate. These are the things that we're now catching up with. What I will say is the advent of U.S. Cyber Command and its linkage with the DHS uh, inside of the Cyber uh, Protection Network is probably the best methodology to go forward with. Canada has a little bit lagged behind on the cyber side uh, just because we don't have... Uh, large military, to be able to affect that. However, uh, the CSE and uh, Canadian Armed Forces linkage is extraordinarily strong, and is also very strong with the United States. Where the cyber domain spills over, that I concern myself with as well, is the spillover not just into our networks, either commercially or militarily, but also into the space domain. Our ability to communicate, uh, to affect NORAD operations worldwide is significantly based Upon our ability to communicate with our satellites, and all of our satellites operate on zeros and ones. Uh, so not only will they be the subject of physical attack, as we've seen in a couple of cases, China being China and India now uh, being two cases that have actually deployed anti-satellite um, weapon systems. I think that from a cyber point of view, this is also a primary area that U.S. Cyber Command and U.S. the new U.S. Space Commander Space Force is going to uh, is going to deal with. Does that answer your question, sir? Okay, what What else do you want me to answer? I am not in a position to either deny or... So I can't speak to the specific natures of the attacks uh, uh, on any of the networks, but all of the networks, both military and civilian commercial, are under attack from a variety of entities at all times. And both of those nations do execute attacks, yes.
0: Hello, sir. Uh, so in response, uh, Russia and China look over here, slash, also we know Russia flies their bears over in Alaskan airspace
2: uh, ever so frequently as strategic messaging. As we bring up the F-35s
0: into Alaska, what do you anticipate the response will be from those two nations?
2: Well, so that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, So the F-35 is, I guess I, I, I can't speak for the Russians or the Chinese, how they would perceive that, but. My sense to this is is they will perceive that as a force projection uh, platform. Uh, In so doing, uh, they will fly, I don't want to say they'll fly their uh, long range aviation against us as a counter to the F 35, but I think you'll see a rapid increase in how they fly their intelligence collectors against us. Uh, So the Bears and uh, Backfires Blackjacks are all, to a certain extent, intelligence collectors. What they want is they want the F 35 to come out. And do those intercepts so that they can, uh, you know, get gather intelligence on them. Um, so I, th- I think that's going to be their game a little bit. The more that we uh, and and we do the same with them, they're conducting operations in Syria. We're watching very closely how they do operations in Syria because we garner a lot of intelligence from them. The benefit of Alaska and especially the J-Park Joint Pacific. Alaska Range Complex, thank you, that's my Canadian non-Alaska speak going through, it is the largest complex of uh, uh, training facility ranges in the United States. I'd posture almost the world, but I'm not really sure about some of the uh, bases and in, in training areas in the Penboy range Range in, in Russia. However, what that does is it's a long ways away from any prying eyes. Uh, the in, ability to gather intelligence over that large uh, an area is is difficult. The F- 35 is going to be operating in that area as well. And that's where we conduct the vast majority of its training. So from a NORAD perspective, right now, NORAD is not planned to have a portion of F-35s to support its operation, although it could integrate them in uh, very quickly. Gen 5 fighters writ large are sought after by the Russians in terms of gathering intelligence on them as they try to develop their own Gen 5 uh, capability as well. So I think that's what that... It's going to manifest itself as far as NORAD is concerned and I think that uh, your first comment with respect to strategic messaging is probably the, the the defining way to look at Russian long-range aviation. They will fly their long-range aviation as, to send a strategic message. I don't think the F-35 is going to add to the message that they want to send with respect to Alaska. Uh, they're here quite often anyways. So oh, I don't think it changes that much. So I don't think we'll see a, a rapid increase. What I think we will see is a rapid increase in um, naval, Russian naval aviation as the United States Navy uh, operates more and more into the Arctic sphere as the ice opens up and the United States Navy starts to project its surface power uh, into the Arctic which is it's planning to do and I think this is a very very good thing uh, I think you'll see more and more Russian military aviation flying against them and we've seen this the same reaction that we've seen uh, in Europe to ucom's exercises and NATO's exercises in Europe you'll see that same reaction happening more frequently as we do it uh, in the bearings and up into the up into the uh, Arctic. Does that answer your question? Because I don't want to answer it partially, because I want to answer the whole question. Thank you.
3: Sir, a quick word of background since I don't resemble anything military these days. Um, Keith Mashinsky, I retired in 2013, as the J. Bear Senior Chaplain with a CH. Uh, and I probably knew your predecessor at the time, even though I didn't get invited over to that building that often. Uh, You can come over right now. Can I come (laughs) over? Yes, sir. Well, there's going to be another connection here because uh, probably around the time that you were born, I I recognize I've immediately dated myself. (laughs) Uh, My my father, who was also a career chaplain, established a lifelong uh, relationship, uh, friendship with the Canadian Air Force family as we were stationed in 66 and 67 in the world before Joint Basing, otherwise known as Joint Base Goose Bay Labrador. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was uh, quite an interesting time for a junior high student. Um, it gave you a little bit of that background simply because uh, with my uh, uh, favorite uh, non-Canadian, uh, uh, British background uh, folks, Monty Python, now uh, for something completely different. Uh, A couple of questions for your particular leadership style, decision-making process. Um, If you are, regardless of the weapons platform that you're commanding, uh, if you have a situation where a question of uh, uh, engaging uh, that, or using that platform and potentially having collateral damage in the sense of civilian casualties or something else, would you prefer a to consult with your chaplain, or B, to consult with your legal office, or both, and by the way, I happen to be both a lawyer and a chaplain, so yeah. I'll be interested to see where you come down on that one, sir. and then the other one is a little bit uh, more specific with regards to your leadership style, too, but if you'd like to... Just say, share just a little bit of insight into your decision-making process. Should that task of uh, responding to uh, enemy threat, collateral damage, just war? I mean, is there wrestling? So, with so that? there's there's obviously a lot of wrestling. Yeah. So uh,
2: I'll, I'll respond with a little bit of background. I am one of the authors of the King Armed Forces Use of Force Manual. When We did this at the inception. So how use of force is controlled within the Canadian military, I was one of the authors of of us bringing this up and I'm also the resident RCAF expert on use of force from the Canadian Air Force's perspective. Canada and the United States have some fundamental differences with respect to how we see the application of use of force. We tried to in uh, 2000, funny enough prior to 9-11, put together CAN-US rules of engagement. We were not able Matter of fact, I went down to the United States uh, for a week-long conference and came back after uh, a day and a half because we could not get past the concept of self-defense. So Canada views self-defense as a right, but it's not an obligation. Which means that if someone engages me and I do not believe that I need to use force, then I don't have to. The United States military does does not see that the same way. Those concepts and those conceptual differences put us on different paths with respect to the the principles surrounding the use of force. However, both of those principles of the use of force are rooted in the same just war, as you've said, uh, laws of armed conflict, fundamental principles of do no harm and do good, uh, whether it's, and I I did my master's thesis on this, so uh, whether it's the United States uh, standing joint rules of engagement or the Canadian use of force manual. The principles are almost identical because they're rooted in the same uh, chivalry and uh, do no harm, be positive uh, with respect and control the use of force uh, mechanisms that exist in both of our nations. You bring an excellent question in terms of the ethical dilemma in the use of force between uh, causing collateral damage versus accomplishing the mission. Uh, Do I always want to have my legal advisor? You bet. And the reason for that is, is because he's the one who's going to give me advice and it is only advice I have taken and I have left legal advice uh, and I've watched my CDS do the same thing. And the reason for that is we spend an awful lot of time talking about the ethical obligations of the use of force and these kinds of things. Would I uh, want to advise my or or seek the advice of my chaplain? Uh, uh, We use our chaplains maybe a little bit differently. But what I will tell you is the continuous advice that I get on the ethical side of our uh, leadership is fundamental to the use of force. I, uh, friend of mine, as a matter of fact, he was uh, the NORAD deputy during 9-11, a guy by the name of Rick Finley. who's was a really good friend of mine. Uh, issued an order when he deployed forces down to Haiti. He said, you will not shoot anyone in the back, period. I don't want to hear about it. Of course, now you got, you know, in Troopies in the audience who can say, okay, and they can come up with 25 different you know, scenarios. They're charging at. They're doing it. It goes, I don't care. You're not going to do that because the moral obligation to us was above that. When I deployed to Haiti in 2010, I briefed my, all my troops, all uh, you a know, few hundred of them, on uh, how they were going to apply force. And I said, the first thing that you will do on your escalatory rung is you will Shoulder your weapon, you'll stick out your hand. And in French, you will say, how's your family? Because I knew that was going to disarm anyone that they were going to talk to. It was going to establish a connection at a personal level. And what was a use of force engagement was going to turn into a personal connection. And we were no longer going to be dealing with escalation. The problem with this paradigm is that in the face of many of our enemies, the moral obligations and the moral foundations upon which we live and operate. Aren't even considered and they will do anything, anything to dismantle us, our way of life and how we do business. The problem is the slippery slope of going down to that level and using force. uh, Against our enemies in a method that doesn't adhere to the same moral standards upon which our nations are founded, so. But in an ethical de- dilemma between the you know, collateral damage and accomplishing the mission, this is going to be a balance. There is no real right answer. We deal in things with numbers of collateral damage or probabilities. Wow, that's hard. And then we force people to make instantaneous decisions in, in seconds and or minutes with respect to large caliber munitions the possibility of life and how many lives is okay and is one enough. That's tough. That's tough and that's how we train our leaders to try and categorize these things. And we give authority levels to those and we deal with lots of things like you know, uh, engagement circles and the proximity and and these types of things. But that does not change the moral effect that this has. I will tell you from a leadership point of view, and for the longest time in my community, I'm a helicopter pilot, for the first 15, 20 years that we were servicing, yeah, we had guns on our, our helicopters, but we deployed to places like Haiti, Honduras, Tegucigalpa, Bosnia, Kosovo. Did we have to use our weapons? Yes, but they were always in self-defense, and they were always part of a, a, a bigger mission, which was maintaining peace. Afghanistan changed that for us. We had to be offensive with the way in which we were going to use force. And many of our crews were not ready for the moral and and mental uh, terror that that was going to have on their psyche. Worse than, you know, uh, the kind of things that they were seeing in some of these other places because at least there they were contributing to the assistance of it. It's harder to see that when you're in combat. These are the kinds of things that as leaders, they pay us big money to do uh, is to make sure that we rationalize and understand to our troops that in the end, we're doing good. That good might have to be eliminating that enemy. And we use our Padres, our chain of command, and our compassion to make sure that our troops are taken care of. Everybody has that schism that goes in their brain. It's easier to do it in a combined air operations center where you're saying the collateral damage around that uh, weapon system is acceptable. Thank you, Mr. Lawyer. Can we go back to, is it the right thing to do? And and I think that, at least from a Canadian perspective, and from everything that I've seen from my American partners, and that we stand very, very similar with this, these are the moral questions that are asked at every instance. Somehow, sometimes it plays out to being much more brash and, you know, uh, cavalier. My experience is it has not been that way at all that it is uh, a moral debate and dilemma that, that occurs. And it's a tough one, but uh, it's at the center point of what we do.
3: And, and, and fr- before my next question, if I could just ask, are you, uh, are you taking volunteers? Because that attitude is the exception, as I've discovered it during my career. It was more often a question of the JAG. In between the lines, what can I get away with, as opposed to... What is ethical, just, moral? Uh, m- remember when uh, when uh, President Bush said, I don't care what laws they're going by, we're going to go by the LOAC rules that we've, uh, Geneva Convention, etc." The other thing which you kind of alluded to in that process was uh, my next question, which was do you prefer to be surrounded by yes men and women? Or do you want somebody to say, Sir, I don't think that's a good idea because? Hey, uh,
2: Crack, can you stand up? So, you know, at the back, you've got the deputy uh, operations group commander for three-wing. Crack is my sound voice of reason all the time, because he keeps on telling me, sir, you can sit down there. Uh <laughs> He didn't like that I singled him out. Uh, but, I, 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 you know, I've, I've been around this game for 35 years. Uh, and my experience is that, yeah, you get all sorts of characters. I don't like pigeonholing people into yes-men or, you know, the... But I always tell all of my students when I was teaching at the Army Staff College, and I I tell a lot of the people that I work with, the most powerful point of view is the opposing point of view. In Canada, our founding forefathers knew this, because uh, when you elect a government, you have the Prime Minister, and he goes to the Governor General's house, and the Governor General asks him to form a government, and away we go, we form the government. The second person that the Governor General invites in is the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And the Governor General charges the leader of the official opposition to present the opposing point of view in Parliament at all times. Our founding forefathers knew that by presenting the opposing point of view, you are always, always going to make the government stronger. You're going going to have to defend why you want to do something, but not only defend, but perhaps acquiesce. You know what, you got a good point. Uh, we'll change this piece, so Yeah. okay, that's a good, yeah. now it doesn't play out like that right now because of the polarization of politics. So I enjoyed the opposing point of view. As a matter of fact, and I was, you know, uh, Crack and I were, were dealing with a lot of things over the last little while, and and I need that opposing point of view. When you think about thought process, and uh, who in your institutions you surround yourself with. Don't think of it necessarily as yes-men or not, but think about it as diversity of thought. And diversity can be used as saying, uh, let's see, at least not all 50-year-old white males, but it can also be diversity in thought, and I'm not thinking the same way. Look, the military does something. There was a, a series of... Uh, of uh, shows back in the 80s called On War by a guy by the name of Gwen Dyer, uh, Canadian. And he uh, his first one was Anyone's Son Will Do. And it's about the recruiting process and basically how I'm gonna create a society where the only right way to do things is our way. That's how we do basic training, right? That's why the Crucible is the way it is with the United States Marine Corps. The danger with that is trundle 30 years, 35 years forward What's everybody thinking like? Yeah, they're thinking like that's the only way to do things. And then you have these companies come in the, the, you know, the sideways and say, hey, have you ever thought about doing it like this? Uh-oh. My sister is the uh, chief of operations for the Canadian Red Cross, the entire Canadian Red Cross. And she continues to ask me, you know, how's that 1950s uh, administrative bureaucracy working for you? because she's an HR expert, and we don't do HR very well in the military, let me tell you. Uh, So, And it's given me a different perspective on things that I find to be so valuable. So to answer your question, I don't like pitching whole people into yes men or no men, but I still like diversity of thought and the opposing point of view.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard the U.S.-Canadian Alliance for Peace and Security in Alaska, featuring Brigadier General Scott Clancy. This event was hosted by the Alaska World Affairs Council and was recorded on May 10th at 49th State Brewing Company. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like it, head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page.